This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Let me, um, I'm Judy Goldstein. Let me welcome you to our, our first panel. As you see from the program, we're, we're an unusual combination of, uh, of uh, papers and panels, um, which I think, as Horatio said, reflects the, uh, the sort of the mixed nature, or the, the, the more unusual nature of, of the conference. So let me just say a few words about, about what we were thinking when we organized this panel, and then I'll introduce the, uh, the speakers, short introductions, because we don't have much time, and they're each going to speak a little bit, and then we're going to let them argue with each other about it. Um, you know, why panel on do trade agreements matter? Um, the, the orientation of, this, of, the, of the conference was about the effects of trade liberalization. And um, as all of you know, um, it is possible for uh, countries to decide to unilaterally uh, liberalize trade, um, as the British did in the 19th century. But in our era, that, that's, that's actually relatively rare. Um, most of the time, a uh, liberalization, uh, liberalization of the economy um, is preceded by some set of treaty agreements, either bilateral or multilateral. And um, in our own time, in the last uh, 40, 50 years, these agreements have proliferated dramatically. Um, there have been multilateral agreements, huge multilateral agreements in the form of a GATT and then the WTO, and a vast proliferation of um, either preferential regional uh, agreements um, around the globe, especially in the last five to 10 years, a huge proliferation of those agreements. And, and so as, as analysts, we, we really um, might assume that uh, there's some, some cause between the signing of the agreement and the uh, liberalization, but, 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 but it's, it's, not, it's not so clear that there is that relationship and, and under what conditions people sign it here and under what conditions people sign it here totally as opposed to partially and then whether or not the effect is, is, is actually welfare enhancing. These are, these are all issues that we're now thinking about much more seriously um, and so before we jump into looking at the, the effect, um, in, in the really excellent papers we're going to start talking about in a couple of hours, we decided that maybe we should think a bit about, about the process of, of getting to the table and whether or not thinking about what happens at the table matters at all. And so we're going to arrange um, um, th this discussion in, in, a, in a bit of a disparate way. We invited very different kinds of um, analysts to, to share their thoughts with us. Um, and, and you'll notice that people come from different, different traditions. We have um, an economist, because of course you need an economist. Um, I'm a political scientist, and I would say this is a political issue, so of course you have a political, uh, uh, a political scientist. Um, you can't think anything about this without having a representative from the legal, uh, for a lawyer, a sort of a legal analyst. And, and then, of course, the person who actually sits and has to administer uh, the, uh, the treaties is just as important as, as all of us thinking about, about the treaty. So, so we, we, we have all of us represented here. It's a unique moment to have all of us sitting and talking to each other. Um, I want to just say, having said that there are people are very diverse, we are all diverse of, of, of a sort. We're not really that, that diverse. I mean, the, the lawyer looks a lot like an economist, and the political scientist is pretty much like an economist. And, and actually, the uh, policymaker isn't an economist. So, so we're, we're different. And I'm glad I had to say I knew you were an economist. Uh, we, we're, we're the same, but we're different, uh, but, but, uh, but we speak a language. And I can tell you there are people out there in the world who speak a very different language than the language we talk about, um, we t we're talking about here. Um, so let, let me begin. Um, we're going to begin with, with Penny Goldberg. Um, we're going to go in this order. Penny's going to speak, and then, and then Mike Toms, and uh, then Alan Sykes, and we're going to finish up with, with Dr. Supachai, who in some ways is the most reflective of having the most hands-on 
experience. Um, then we'll open up for a conversation with, with the group and, and with you. So let me just two seconds, a little bit, um, um, so I don't have to do introductions again and again. So P Penny Goldberg to my left um, is, uh, is uh, currently a professor of economics at Yale. Um, she came to Yale via Columbia and before that Princeton, right? And before that, she was actually a graduate student here. Um, she's done extensive work on trade, trade issues, and uh, liberalization effects, what I consider the effects of, of trade liberalization. Um, Mike Toms on the, the, the far side will we'll, we'll talk next. Mike Toms is a assistant uh, professor of political science at Stanford. He comes to us via Harvard. Um, Mike does uh, extensive work not only in trade but on um, sovereign debt issues. He has an excellent, excellent, excellent book coming out, Princeton Press, on sovereign debt. You should all buy it. Um, he's not going to talk about that today. He's going to talk about work that we've actually done together on the effectiveness of uh, the GATT WTO, and he'll, have, he'll show you some data on it. Um, Ellen Sykes, um, recently coming to Stanford via University of Chicago to the law school. Um, Ellen is a, uh, a course between an economist and, and, and a lawyer. Um, he's sort of a, uh, 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 he's a, a lawyer and economist closed in it says some combination, and, and he's going he's to talk generally about, um, he's written extensively of, uh, about thinking about how the rules, effects of the rules, and, um, and whether or not they're welfare enhancing. And then finally, um, for those of you who came last night, you all, all, all met our, our guest speaker who has um, extensive experience um, in Thailand negotiating agreements, in the WTO administering agreements, and now in UNCTAD. Um, thinking about what, the, what the, the position of the developing world should be in agreement, so extensive on, on all, all sides. So, so we turn to Penny, and I, I look forward to, uh, to an interesting discussion. So uh, thanks a lot, Judy, for the introductions. Uh, as Judy said, we all have very different backgrounds, but I doubt that in this instance we're going to have diversity of opinion. So given that I'm going first, I thought I'd start by trying to address the very basic question of why we're having this panel discussion in the first place. And uh, the reason I'm saying that is because I would have thought that most of us, at least those of us who haven't, uh, who are not familiar with the recent uh, literature on empirical trade, uh, would have considered it self-evident that trade agreements matter. And I'm not saying that just because um, of all the commentaries on the Doha round and the very strong public reaction to uh, trade agreements, but also more from an academic perspective. Uh, uh, in economics, we have a huge theoretical literature on the role of trade agreements. And this literature has established that trade agreements can play a very important role in establishing, uh, go in, in achieving goals that domestic governments cannot achieve by themselves. And here I'm thinking mostly of the world, for example, of uh, Tabellini or, or Bagul and Steger uh, or Maggi that showed that uh, governments can use these trade agreements either as a means to discipline domestic lobbies when these lobbies uh, lobby very strongly for domestic protection or they can use them to overcome a prisoner's dilemma that arises when domestic governments want to uh, improve unilaterally the terms of trade. And uh, these are things that governments cannot achieve unilaterally, so they have to sit at the table together. Uh, so given this background, I would, have, I would have thought that it's obvious that trade agreements can play a very important role in promoting trade. Um, so I think the main reason we're having this session is actually uh, an empirical paper that came out uh, two years ago in the American Economic Review by Andy Rose 
and in some sense, if you wanted a big debate, it would have been nice to have him here. <laughs> um, and in this paper, Andrew Rose claimed that empirically, uh, despite these theoretical arguments that I mentioned before, there is no evidence that GATT or the WTO or multilateral agreements in general have promoted trade. Um, to summarize what he did uh, in his work, Rose pulled data from a large set of countries, approximately 180 countries, from 48 to 99, and then assigned a dummy variable uh, to countries that, uh, that are participants either in GATT or the WTO. And then he asked the question, do countries that are GATT or WTO members trade more with each other than countries that are not members? And uh, his, the, the, the basic result he focuses on in his discussion indicates that this is not the case. And in fact, he claims that the effect of other trade arrangements, for, for example, the generalized uh, system of preferences, are substantially larger than the effects of CAT or the WTO. Now, um, most of us would have thought this is perhaps not the most interesting question to ask. It would have been more interesting to ask the question <coughs> conditional on uh, uh, trading with each other, did GATT or the WTO increase the trade of any particular trading partners? Because uh, countries trade with each other for a variety of reasons that have nothing to do with trade agreements. For example, you may trade with each other because of historical reasons, because you've established networks of trade, and so on. Um, so just by focusing at the cross-sectional uh, implications, uh, you're not going to make any interesting statements about the, the impact of GATT or the WTO. And in fact, if you address the second question, did GATT or the WTO increase the trade for any particular given country pair, then the results are more favorable, uh, favorable for GATT or the WTO. But still, they remain very small. So according to Rose, GATT or the WTO increased trade only by 16%, which most of, of us would have thought this is a very small number. Right, so needless to say that uh, this work led to a very strong reaction in the profession, both in economics and in political science, I think, and many people worked on, on uh, uh, confirming or uh, contradicting these results, and I'm sure that uh, um, other people, other panelists will want to talk more about it. Uh, there are also various econometric concerns that one can have about this work. But I will try not to get into details. Um, and instead, I will try to raise th three main issues that one can have with this approach of addressing uh, the effects of GATT or the WTO. So the first uh, main concern has to do with um, the way this dummy variable is, is assigned to members versus non-members. Uh, so as I said before, GATT membership is captured by a simple dummy that takes the value of zero or the value of one. Um, several people have pointed out before that this is a very imperfect way of capturing the, the obligations and privileges under GATT. And uh, Judy and uh, Michael have shown, for example, that in, in a paper that I think is also coming in the American Economic Review, that there were many non-members that had very similar privileges and obligations under GATT as members, and these were misclassified in the initial paper. This turns out to make a huge difference in the results. Uh, second, it has been shown that uh, GATT involved various asymmetries in the way it treated the member countries, even if we agree who the members were. And in particular, there was a very big asymmetry between the developed countries and the developing countries. The developed countries that joined in the early rounds, they actually liberalized their trade regimes uh, in contrast to the developing countries that um, were granted special status 
And as a result, most of them did not liberalize at all. And uh, personally, I have done a lot of work on Colombia, and there are many Colombian citizens here. Um, and so Colombia joined the GATT officially in 1981. It had an extremely restrictive trade regime throughout the 80s and did not start uh, liberalizing until 87, 88, and early 90s. And when they finally liberalized, the final results looked very much like what the WTO or GATT at the time had envisioned. But if you try to capture the effect of cut by assigning a dummy that takes the value of one in 1981, you would have completely missed uh, the effect in this case. Um, well, ironically, uh, so people have documented this fact that developing countries, in fact, did, do not show to have increased their trade as a result of, of GATT or WTO. And sometimes, paradoxically, this is interpreted as evidence that developing countries get exploited by these trade agreements. And this is truly a paradox because participation in these agreements doesn't mean that miraculously trade, trade will increase. Uh, uh, it will only increase if you actually actively participate in liberalization rounds. And if liberalization does not take place, there is no surprise that the trade will not increase either. Um, a, third, uh, a third point that people made uh, is that, again, GATT and the WTO didn't liberalize across the board. There are various sectors that were sheltered from liberalization, most importantly agriculture and uh, textiles. And in countries where these sectors are quite important, uh, naturally trade will not have increased by as much as if these sectors had been liberalized. So once one takes these effects into account, and people have done that in, in subsequent work, uh, people actually find substantially larger effects. So, so these effects uh, range from, I would say, 25% to effects above 100%. So there are effects that, that are orders of magnitude larger than the initial effects. Now, I should also point out that here we are talking about the effects of GATT or the WTO on trade flows, which seems actually a manageable question. We're not asking uh, the perhaps more important question, what do these trade agreements ultimately do to national welfare, to the labor markets, to the income distribution, and so on. But as a first step, what this work tried to address is the question of whether we see an effect on trade flows as a minimum. Uh, so, so this was the, so my first point in general can be summarized as uh, the details of implementation when you do this kind of work are going to matter an awful lot, and work that has been very careful about the institutional details of these arrangements and what actually went on tends to find substantially larger effects. Uh, my second point is more of a conceptual one and has to do with the nature of the question itself. Uh, when I look at all these numbers across papers, uh, the ones that are large or the, the ones that are small, um, one general concern I have is that I'm not quite sure how to interpret them. So is 50% a large increase or is 100% a large increase? And if so, relative to what? So in other words, what is the relevant benchmark uh, based on which we should be judging these numbers? Is it just the, the imports and exports of the previous years? In which case, it's not surprising that trade flows are increasing. After all, the world economy is growing, and as the world economy is growing, so do imports. Or is the relevant benchmark uh, the ideal of free trade that may be infeasible in the short or medium run? Or are we talking here about politically feasible uh, tariff reductions? Um, and so it would be very helpful in this, uh, when one asks these questions to have 
some benchmark in mind. And again, this is a, an area of where the theoretical literature on trade agreements could provide a lot of guidance. Um, my final remark, um, again, is more general in nature and uh, does not apply to trade agreements per se, but applies to all work in international trade, including the one that I have done myself, that tries to estimate effects of, of trade policy changes, and in particular trade liberalization episodes. And uh, it's not uncommon in this line of work to find that the effects of trade liberalization are small. And by that I don't mean effects on labor markets, again, or effects on welfare that are fundamentally very hard to identify, but I mean effects on trade flows, which you would have thought are relatively easy to pin down empirically. And so it's a common finding that these effects are, are small. And there are two interpretations for this finding. One is that the measurement problems associated with measuring liberalization are enormous. Uh, this applies to tariff reductions, but it's a much more severe problem when it comes to non-tariff reductions, <coughs> to, to non-tariff barrier reductions that have become uh, perhaps more common in recent years. So it's very hard to capture them empirically. So that's one uh, potential interpretation. And the other interpretation is um, the political economy of trade protection and the fundamental endogeneity of these uh, policy changes. And this is a point, again, that would seem trivial in any other field of applied microeconomics when we consider policy changes in public finance or in labor economics. The first question uh, we ask is, uh, why did the policy change in the first place? And for some reason, this type of questioning is not very common in international trade. Um, coming to GATT or uh, the WTO specifically, um, no one really believes that the decision of countries to join these trade agreements is completely exogenous to their economic conditions, neither is the timing. And if you don't take that into account, uh, it would be no surprise that you will find small effects of the liberalization episodes. So consider a very simple example where countries protect their domestic sectors when they're threatened by imports and they liberalize when the trade balances are favorable. Uh, if that's the case, uh, you will naturally find a very small correlation between imports and uh, trade liberalization in the data. So um, uh, this is easy to point out. It's very hard to remedy because it would call for appropriate, finding appropriate instruments or having a very comprehensive theory of uh, policy determination, which are enormous challenges. So it's not that I can easily propose a solution, but, but what I think this suggests is, is that all empirical studies will naturally tend to understate the effects of trade liberalization. And this makes these large numbers that I mentioned before, so the large numbers that empirical, recent empirical studies of, on the effects of GATT or the WTO find even more surprising. Uh, so when people find that GATT or the WTO increased trade flows by 100%, um, I find this number incredibly large given the concern that I just mentioned about the endogeneity of membership and the endogeneity of the timing of the, of the membership. Um, so just to conclude, uh, given that there are also other speakers, uh, uh, I'm personally an empirically minded economist, so I, I very strongly believe that uh, you know, theory should be motivated by empirical observations and also that theory ultimately should be taken to the data. But this is one area where I, I, I am doubtful that any empirical results showing that that or the WTO did not have any effects on trade would e ever be credible. Um, so uh, 
even as an empirical economist, I would have more confidence in that case to uh, basic principles, or if you do empirical work to very carefully done work based on case studies or based on a very careful institutional study of these arrangements. I'll stop here. Thank you, Penny. Um, Mike? Um, well, Penny covered most of the issues that I want to no, know. Uh, Penny, Penny raised some important questions that I, I won't uh, be able to answer in full, of course. There are the important questions for research in this field. But I wanted to say a little bit about uh, work that we're doing here at Stanford that tries to address some of the empirical questions that, um, that Penny raised. But um, as a preface to that, um, I wanted to say that uh, with regard to the question, the, the title of this panel is Do Trade Agreements Matter? Uh, and for me, uh, that question breaks down into two parts. Uh, there's an economic component to it and a political component to it. Uh, the economic uh, question is a question about how trade agreements affect the behavior of traders uh, and investors, and much of the literature that Penny cited a minute ago uh, is about that uh, economic question. But underlying the economics uh, is also an important political question about how, uh, what happens when, uh, politically when countries enter into international trade agreements. How do those trade agreements affect uh, the behavior of voters? How do they affect uh, the behavior of policymakers? And so I think that uh, empirical research in uh, this field um, needs to address both elements, uh, both the economic and the political component. There are, um, I think, uh, two research strategies, empirical research strategies, for trying to answer these questions. Uh, the first is the analysis of historical data. Uh, and the bulk of research that's been done to this point has uh, involved historical data. I'll say a few uh, words about what we're doing with historical data at Stanford. Um, a second research strategy, uh, one that's not so much used in the field, but one uh, which I think would be promising, uh, is the use of randomized experiments as a complement uh, to the analysis of historical data. And I'll say a few uh, words about what exactly I mean by historic, uh, randomized experiments in this context. Um, so Penny mentioned um, a puzzle that has emerged over the last two or three years uh, in the empirical literature about international trade. And that's that many of us uh, assume that uh, the GATT, WTO, and other international trade agreements had a positive effect on international trade, um, but that some studies, including a recent study by Andrew Rose, finds that the GATT, WTO, uh, did not have the anticipated effect. Uh, his, uh, the paper that Penny mentioned, uh, which was published in the American Economic Review two years ago, uh, used a gravity model to find that uh, the GATT WTO did not increase trade between pairs of countries relative to what we might expect uh, based on standard uh, gravity variables. Uh, Rose has a complementary paper uh, which concludes that uh, the GATT WTO had no effect on trade policies either. Um, and so for much of us working in the area of international trade, these empirical results came as a shock. Uh, they caused us to uh, rethink the work that we were doing, and uh, not only at a theoretical level, but also to uh, press deeper empirically to see if we could resolve this puzzle. Uh, I don't claim to have the answer uh, to this puzzle, but uh, one possibility, uh, one possible solution to this puzzle is outlined uh, in a paper that's forthcoming by Goldstein, Rivers, and Toms and the Political Science Journal International Organization. The argument that we develop in that paper uh, is the claim that previous estimates, including Rose's estimates, about the effect of the GATT WTO on international trade are biased downward because they misclassify many countries to whom the GATT applied. Uh, 
In particular, uh, research by Rose and others has tended to focus on formal members of the GATT and the WTO. By formal members, I mean countries that founded the organization. I also mean countries that subsequently entered into the organization, into GATT, via Article 33. Uh, they negotiated their way into the agreement. Um, or former colonies uh, that entered under the provisions of Article 26.5. Uh, or countries that signed on to the WTO uh, when it was created in the 1990s. So previous research has focused on these formal members of the organization. Uh, what we claim uh, in this paper, uh, based on a fair amount of archival evidence, uh, is that other countries had rights and obligations under the agreement. Uh, in particular, uh, colonies, uh, though not formal members of the GATT WTO, had the same rights and obligations as formal members. So when Britain entered the, uh, the GATT, it did so not only on its own behalf, uh, but also on behalf of members of the British colonial empire. The same applies to France and other colonial powers. Uh, so those colonies um, had rights and obligations under the GATT, but previous analysis had treated them as if they were outside of the organization. Um, likewise, uh, newly independent states had rights and obligations under the organization. Um, the uh, members of the GATT faced an important question, having given these rights to colonies, which was how do you treat countries uh, when they move from colonial status to being uh, independent? Do those, organizations get, those countries get kicked out of the organization, or do they retain the same rights as they had had previously? Uh, the initial decision that was made is that they could continue as de facto members of the organization until they decided to sign up formally uh, in their own names. Um, so that's what I mean by newly independent states having rights and obligations. Uh, and finally, under the GATT, there was a category of provisional member, uh, and this was established to allow countries to participate in the benefits and to begin to offer uh, the benefits uh, of membership even before they had completed the negotiations uh, regarding the terms of accession under Article 33. Uh, these three categories of countries, colonies, newly independent states, and provisional members, had been treated in previous research as being outside the organization. Uh, what we find uh, in our work is that if we correct this misclassification, if we treat them as being in the organization rather than out of the organization, then the uh, effects of GATT on international trade uh, become more apparent. Let me uh, give some, uh, some of the estimates that we arrive at in our paper. Um, we find that, um, so this is a table that breaks down um, country dyads uh, into um, different categories based on uh, the way that a country did or did not participate in the GATT WTO. Formal member, as I mentioned before, is a country that was either a founder or one that entered into the organization under Article 33, Article 26.5, uh, or through the accession procedures of the WTO. A non-member participant uh, is one of those colonies or newly independent states or provisional members. And a non-participant is a country that had no role in the GATT WTO uh, through any of those uh, means that I just discussed. Uh, what the table gives, uh, based on some regression estimates that, uh, that we run, is the percentage increase in trade uh, for a dyad that would be uh, composed of two states um, identified by the row and column in the table there, relative to a dyad in which the two uh, countries did not participate in the GATT at all. So if you take the bottom right-hand corner of this table, that's our baseline. When one country is a non-participant, that's the row uh, variable, and the other is a non-participant, that's the column variable, uh, we assign uh, a 0%. It's estimated that the uh, effect on trade is zero. That's our baseline category. All the other numbers in the table show how much more trade uh, 
we observe uh, with other types of dyads. So if you look to the upper left of the table, for example, when both countries are a formal member, formal member in the row and formal member in the column, we find that uh, trade is 40% higher than uh, if neither country is a participant in the organization. Likewise, when one country is a formal member and another is a non-participant, uh, we find that trade increases by 46%. You can see from the other numbers in the table that um, these estimates are, um, by some standards anyway, large, though Penny is right to ask what's the appropriate uh, benchmark, but at least compared to countries that are outside the organization, I think we'd conclude that a 40% or a 46% or a 57% increase in trade uh, is quite a lot uh, of trade that could potentially be attributable to the GATT. Um, another thing that we've been doing in our uh, research uh, here at Stanford is collecting data on other types of trade agreements, not simply the GATT, uh, but also preferential trade agreements, uh, currency unions, uh, colonial networks of trade. And we've been asking for those, um, not only whether they seem to have a positive effect on trade, but how their effect on trade might have evolved over time. And this is uh, a plot from uh, the Goldstein, uh, Rivers, and Tom's paper. Uh, that shows uh, how the effect of these agreements has evolved over the last 60 years or so. Um, and what we find is that though the GATT has a positive influence on trade, and so do colonial networks, that those effects seem to be dissipating over time. Those are the downward sloping lines uh, in this graph. Um, whereas the effect of preferential trade agreements seems to uh, be increasing. Uh, and that is, I think, consistent with many of our intuitions about how preferential trade agreements are uh, gaining an increasingly important role in international trade, uh, and uh, that the GATT WTO, uh, though it continues to be important, uh, may be less so than it was in the immediate uh, post-war period as a stimulator for new trade. Um, some uh, projects that we're uh, working on, that I'm working on and Judy is working on now, um, involve uh, analyzing other types of trade agreements. So one of the puzzles that came out in the research that we've done so far is about the effect of the uh, generalized system of preferences, or the GSP. Um, we collected uh, what we regard as uh, very comprehensive data on which countries gave general, generalized system of preference um, access to other countries and to our surprise found that it did not have the positive effect on trade that many people have anticipated. Uh, so we're trying to solve that puzzle of why uh, the GATT WTO seems to have such a powerful effect, and other PTAs do, uh, but not the GSP. Uh, we're also, we've also been collecting data on uh, most favored nation agreements uh, prior to World War II, and uh, additional work on colonial networks. Um, I've also been interested in asking the question about if estimating the effect of formalization itself. Uh, as, as Judy mentioned at the outset, countries can liberalize their trade unilaterally, as Britain did in the 19th century, or they could liberalize their trade and uh, codify the liberalization of that trade in the form of an international agreement. What difference, if any, does it make that that liberalization of trade is embedded in an agreement? Uh, one way of getting at that question is to, to isolating the effect of formalization is to uh, study the effects of agreements that simply codify the status quo. Uh, that lock into uh, place uh, trade liberalization that's already taken place rather than trying to uh, produce further reductions uh, in barriers to trade. Um, well, this is work that we've been doing with historical data. Um, as Penny mentioned, there are some limitations to historical uh, analysis, and one of them uh, is the problem of endogeneity, or what I would call in this context uh, selection bias. Countries enter into these agreements 
for political reasons and economic reasons. Um, and that leads to at least two potential sources of selection bias in the kind of empirical analysis that we and others have been doing. Uh, one is what I would call different baseline propensities. Uh, perhaps you can think of the world as being composed of some countries that are highly motivated to liberalize their trade and others that are not. And maybe it's those countries that are motiva motivated to liberalize their trades who are also the ones that are likely to enter into these international agreements. Um, to the degree that that's so, we would overestimate uh, the effect uh, of the international agreement on trade liberalization. And that's a bit contrary to the perspective that Penny offered, uh, suggesting that maybe these uh, empirical analyses would lead to underestimates. If you think about it this way, uh, the research would lead to an overestimate of the likely effect of the agreement on international trade. Um, it's also possible that trade agreements affect different countries differently, that some countries are more sensitive to trade agreements, their hands are more tightly tied by a trade agreement, to the degree that's so, and politicians are rational and foresighted, perhaps they only enter into agreements when they know that for them, for their countries, it will make a difference. That, too, uh, would cause us to overestimate the effect of trade agreements uh, on, on trade. There have been a lot of statistical solutions that have been, pro been proposed to this problem, the use of control variables, which is what uh, Goldstein, Rivers, and, and Toms use in their paper, and Rose uses in his, for that matter. Instrumental variables as well, uh, but these are very difficult uh, statistical solutions, one that are hard, ones that are hard to verify. It's hard to know whether we've completely solved the endogeneity problem either through the use of control variables or through instrumental variables. And so I wanted to wrap up by uh, suggesting a different uh, approach, uh, which I began to use in some of my research here, which is to complement these historical analyses with uh, experiments, randomized experiments that are embedded in interviews uh, with voters and policymakers to better understand how international agreements affect the policy preferences and beliefs of voters and, and policymakers. The idea is to randomly assign citizens to two groups. You can think of group one uh, as being a group that's posed with a foreign policy problem. Should we reduce our trade barriers with country X? Should we cut off trade with country X? Uh, some question related to international trade or in another area of international relations. Um, but they're told that an international agreement exists in that particular issue area that's pertinent to the, to the question. Uh, second group is presented with the same problem, but no mention is made of an international agreement. So that's where the randomization comes in. Some are randomly assigned to, if you like, a treatment group, group one, and others are randomly assigned to a control group, group two. And then the idea is to compare the views of these two groups as to whether they think trade barriers should be reduced, whether they think trade should be cut off. Uh, this gives us a direct measure of policy preferences uh, and beliefs in a way that avoids the bias from non-random selection because we as the investigators are randomly assigning treatment and control rather than letting countries enter into international agreements based on their uh, baseline propensities or their sensitivity uh, to treatment. What I found in some uh, very preliminary work on this topic is that uh, trade agreements do seem to transform the policy preferences of U.S. voters. Uh, haven't done this with elites yet. Uh, and they do so even in the face of very powerful counter-arguments, um, counter-arguments about the effect on the economy, counter-arguments about the effect on human rights. Um, and yet, a surprisingly large percentage of Americans are willing to violate trade agreements if they think it would be inconvenient and uh, that um, the violation of the trade agreement might be con conducive to helping the U.S. economy or to promoting human rights. So there's evidence on both sides that trade agreements are consequential, but also uh, that Americans are willing to uh, violate it. Uh, and so, so one thing that I, uh, we might talk about later, I could uh, use your advice on, um, 
is thinking about uh, how, to do, how to get access to foreign policy elites to do similar kinds of uh, experiments with foreign policy elites that we're doing with voters, uh, since obviously they're the ones that are closest to making the, these decisions uh, about international trade, uh, and also designing experiments that look at the effects of institutional design or the effect of agreements on beliefs. So uh, Judy, I, and others here uh, would be very welcome for your suggestions for this research. Thanks very much. Thank you, Mike. Well, unlike the uh, prior two speakers, I'm an outsider to the, the world of empirical research on, uh, on the effect of trade agreements, so I, I'll try to be appropriately brief as a consequence, uh, but give you a little bit of an outsider's reaction to all this. Um, and, and I guess the reaction I first had to being assigned to participate on this panel, Do Trade Agreements Matter?, was, was to ask myself the question, what does that question mean? Uh, what, what are people really asking? Uh, if someone makes a claim that a trade agreement does not matter, exactly what do they mean? What are the empiricists testing in this area? And I think um, if, you, if you step back a little bit from the Andrew Rose, Goldstein, Tom's line of papers, one, one, could, one could interpret these questions in a variety of ways, and let me just say a few words about that. Uh, the way, the, the, what the empirical work uh, is doing now, it seems to me, uh, is testing a sort of a limited sort of claim. Uh, one could understand Rose as having tested, based on what I now understand from Judy uh, and Tom, the, the question whether formal membership in a particular trade agreement uh, matters, uh, as distinguished from uh, formal and informal membership in a particular trade agreement. Uh, and it might well be that formal membership in a particular trade agreement does not matter very much for the reasons uh, that Tom gave. Uh, one could also imagine testing uh, whether um, a particular trade agreement matters, whether one is a formal or an informal member, uh, relative to non-membership in that particular trade agreement. And if that's what's being tested, uh, what, what, is, what is really at issue, if you will, is uh, not do trade agreements matter, but does this particular trade agreement matter relative to the substitutes out there that exist, relative to all of the other uh, formal and informal arrangements, regional arrangements, uh, traditional colonial arrangements, and so forth that might be part of, uh, of what determines the flow of trade. And so my, my reaction to the empirical literature so far is that it's not really testing the question, do trade agreements matter? It's testing uh, whether a particular trade agreement matters, and, and the division is over sort of whether the formal versus informal membership in this particular trade agreement really matters. And that's an interesting question, but it's not, it's not really the question, do trade agreements matter? Uh, if, you, if you ask the broader question, do trade agreements matter, and you wanted to imagine that they did not, it seems to me that would involve a, one of two other sorts of claims. One of them might be something like, reciprocal trade agreements taken as a whole uh, don't matter to the volume of trade because you don't need agreements. Uh, one could claim that uh, even in the absence of agreements that uh, informal strategic interaction would achieve the gains that are possible under agreements. And this, by the way, uh, this type of claim could be seen as consistent with uh, modern trade theory to a great extent. I mean, if uh, Bob Steger, I guess, hasn't arrived yet, but I've read a lot of Bagwell and Steger papers, and they, uh, they don't really have a role in them for agreements per se. What they have in them uh, is a strategic equilibrium uh, that is self-enforcing in which uh, each player is 
reciprocally cutting tariffs to a degree that uh, they can sustain with a sort of a grim strategy uh, prospect of retaliation if anyone deviates. So it, it, the models themselves are really quite consistent with there not being any trade agreement, just being a, uh, a strategic equilibrium of long-term cooperation uh, without formal cooperation in the, in the way of an agreement. Um, is, is it plausible that reciprocal trade agreements don't matter for that reason? I think the answer to that is it, it would be plausible if the world were like the models in which there were just a couple of tariffs or subsidies that had to be coordinated on. But when one recognizes the, the need to coordinate on tariffs for thousands of goods and quota tax and regulatory policies and the regulatory policies and services markets and so on, it's almost impossible to imagine that uh, one could get by without formal agreements of some sort. And I, don't, and I don't think anything in the literature claims to refute that proposition. I don't see any, any suggestion that formal agreements are unnecessary because informal strategic cooperation uh, is an adequate substitute. The other extreme version of the claim that trade agreements don't matter would have to take the form uh, that reciprocity of any sort doesn't matter, that uh, without reciprocity, unilateral policy would be identical to what we see with reciprocity. And I think uh, that almost on its face is an absurd claim. We can, we can just see, in, just in reading the law, for example, that uh, presidents have authority for reciprocal trade reductions but not authority for unilateral trade reductions. So it's, it's clear that reciprocity at some fundamental level matters a great deal. Uh, and I, I think it's also clear uh, that formal reciprocity, that is to say written down reciprocity in the form of uh, written agreements matters a great deal as well. And I don't see any of the empirics uh, seriously calling that into question. Um, now, th there are a couple of other types of claims that one might be making if one said that trade agreements don't matter. Uh, and I'll just touch on a couple of those before concluding. One, one type of claim would be to move away from the claims about the volume of trade and make claims about trade agreements mattering or not mattering to other forms of behavior. So one, one, could, one could claim, for example, uh, that TRIPS has had no effect on national intellectual property laws or that the agreement on safeguards has had no effect on safeguard measures or gray area measures. Uh, but that, those claims, too, would be absurd, I think. Uh, it's, one can obviously see how national intellectual property laws have changed because of TRIPS and directly trace that behavioral change to the trade agreement. Uh, one can certainly see how gray area measures have been abolished because of the agreement on safeguards. One can certainly see how the uh, Foreign Sales Corporation Act was amended as a direct response to the decision in the Fisk case in the WTO and so on. So it, it, it's, it's trivially obvious that trade agreements matter to behavior of governments uh, in a myriad of ways that are not uh, captured by simply focusing on the volume of trade. And I, you know, just to give what to me is the most uh, sort of striking change in behavior because of the Uruguay round, which is something that I have written a little bit about, um, the effect of the Uruguay round, it seems to me, was to greatly change the behavior of governments uh, along the margins that one might call unilateralism. There's really no vitality to special 301 anymore now that uh, intellectual property rules are in trips and unilateral assertions of what optimal intellectual policy uh, should be are, are no longer uh, made. Likewise, retaliation within the system. 
prior to the Uruguay round, retaliation was unilateral. A, a country would decide that its rights had been violated or perhaps have a panel decision to that effect and then would unilaterally determine what the magnitude of appropriate retaliation was under Section 301 of the U.S. Trade Act or uh, its counterpart in Europe. Now, uh, retaliation is arbitrated, and nations are uh, told what the proper or appropriate or acceptable level of retaliation is, and we observe them following the arbitration. That is to say, uh, one may not agree with the logic of all the arbitrations, but there doesn't seem to be any doubt that nations obey the arbitrator's decision as to what the size of the sanctions should be. So th this is another way in which behavior, I think, has been affected quite profoundly in a way that's extremely stabilizing to the system uh, to have calibrated retaliation uh, centrally agreed upon. And uh, as I've suggested in some of my prior writings, that also tends to facilitate what, what contract law scholars call efficient breach of commitments. If you can uh, pay the right price to buy out of your commitment, uh, that is set in an appropriate way, then you can efficiently deviate uh, from an incomplete contract, which treaties certainly are. Um, the last type of claim that I'll, I'll mention, and this is by no means an exhaustive list, uh, when one says that trade agreements no, don't matter, goes to a debate that's been going on in international law for a long time. Uh, this type of claim would take the form that uh, trade agreements per se don't matter, uh, that the law per se does not matter. Uh, the, only, the only matter to the extent that uh, the law is coupled with a credible threat of retaliation for deviation from the law. Uh, so th this is a long-standing debate in international law. Do, do countries obey international law because it is law, or do they obey international law because of a threat of retaliation? And this, this line of questioning about whether trade agreements matter uh, leads us into uh, really quite an another rich empirical literature uh, having to do with questions like uh, can small countries that lack the power to retaliate or lack a credible threat of retaliation, can they take advantage of trade agreements? Can developing countries benefit from membership in trade agreements the same way large economies like the United States and Europe can benefit? Uh, and this is a very interesting set of issues, and I, I just want to mention it, that there, there is a, a wonderfully uh, interesting and growing empirical literature that many people have contributed to, uh, which suggests that the answer to the question is at least mixed. It's, it certainly does not suggest uh, that small countries or developing countries are completely inefficacious despite the lack of a credible ability to retaliate in the event of violations by their trading partners. Uh, although it also suggests that may, they may be less efficacious for various reasons, uh, some obvious and some not so obvious, uh, in enforcing their rights. So um, th there's that line of issues uh, as well that one could think about. So I, I guess my, just stepping back and concluding quickly, it's my, my general reaction to all of this is that it seems painfully apparent that trade agreements matter in a lot of different ways to all sorts of different sorts of behavior. Uh, and uh, at most what we're testing in the, the mainstream literature right now is, is really kind of the effects of membership in particular trade agreements, uh, which, is, which is very different from testing the question, do trade agreements generally matter? Uh, does reciprocity matter? Uh, and, and, and to those uh, questions, I think the answers are, are obvious, but they're, they're not really even the questions that are being asked in some of the literature right now. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. That's shy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> this this really has been uh, to me as a 
not as somebody who is part of the academic world, uh, most, most interesting debates, really. Uh, I, I wish uh, I could have learned this before I took a position at the World Trade Organization some years ago. I might have done things probably differently, and uh, I certainly was thinking of my, my colleagues uh, in Geneva at the moment that I wish that they would have uh, this same kind of opportunity to be listening to, to all of you here. So uh, it might give them the urge uh, to be less uh, defensive in the way they negotiate their trade agreements and uh, be a little bit more forthcoming and compassionate so that you know, the, uh, the kind of results that we, we might expect to reap from the agreement could be, uh, could be more expeditiously uh, arrived at. Um, of course, uh, having been employed at the WTO, I certainly would like to believe uh, all the positive things that have been said about the, uh, the implications of trade agreements on, 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 on trade, certainly. Uh, I, I only have uh, uh, some remarks, some, some questions, and uh, some of the uh, practical experience that, that I would like to share with you and, and maybe, maybe to help clarify some of, some of the issues and uh, some of the doubts that may remain in the minds of those who might, uh, who might not think that uh, uh, trade agreements uh, per se uh, uh, will always have positive effects on, on, on trade and development. Um, there are so many things that uh, I like to start. Uh, let, let me try to be a bit systematic. Um, up until the Uruguay round, uh, up until um, 1986, uh, when the Uruguay round, I think 86, was started, the preceding seven rounds of trade negotiations, uh, resulting in all kinds of agreements, uh, had been engaged uh, into mainly by the uh, developed countries, members of the GATT. It has been rounds of trade negotiations, the six, seven rounds, uh, particularly in the areas of uh, industrial products. As Professor Goldberg has been saying, uh, uh, and, and to me exactly up until, up until the uh, late 80s, uh, the, the open countries have been have been rarely involved in the in the kind of of uh, uh, negotiation and, and agreement. Uh, they were left more or less outside of the uh, of the uh, realm of, of agreements, and particularly in the key areas that they might be able to sustain uh, some forms of benefits, uh, which is in the area of agriculture. Agriculture was left outside of the GATT all the time. Has, has never been part of the GATT. And when there was an agreement on agriculture, as you, as you realize, uh, there, was a spatial, there was a spatial agreement on agriculture, which is called agreement on agriculture. This is, this is the, uh, the spatial uh, treatment for agriculture, which doesn't give the same kind uh, of, uh, of, of trade liberalization as one would see uh, when one look at the uh, manufactured goods. There are all kinds of, uh, of exemptions uh, to the agreement on agriculture in a way that major countries that could be involved in trade in agriculture could avoid uh, going through the kind of, I would say, semi-full or full liberalization of trade in agriculture. 
So the bulk of, 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 of the trade which would have involved uh, developing countries in a way that they could reap some benefits from the trade agreement has not really been engaged in up until, up until the late 80, 1980s. Even when agriculture became part of the Uruguay round and the negotiation lasted uh, from 86 to 94, something about uh, something like uh, six, eight years, uh, nine years, um, it, has been, uh, it has been demonstrated that the full treatment uh, of agriculture in the round was not achieved was not achieved. Um, my recollection is that about one-third of what we set out to do in the round was achieved. So there was, there was no full treatment. We started off with something which, is, which was quite uh, ambitious, and we ended up with the so-called Blair House Accord, as I was, I think, uh, referring to in my address yes, yesterday evening, that was only among the court countries, and it was only a partial accord on the trade liberalization in agriculture. I, if I was still at the Brutio and I would say this in public, uh, I'm not supposed to be saying this, but now within this academic uh, institution, I, I, I think I can say this. I would say that most of the developing countries, after the termination, completion of the, uh, of the round, thought that they did not actually gain very much from the Uruguay round. And mainly because of the fact that uh, nothing much, according to their own assessment, was achieved in the area of agriculture, for which they were working very hard for. In fact, in fact, uh, most of the European countries were saying that, uh, in exchange for the small piece of uh, uh, reduction in subsidies that had been actually covered by some recent rises in subsidies in the meantime, because they were negotiating for quite a long period of time, it was caught up by the new rises in subsidies. So it was actually not a substantial. Uh, gain that has been achieved then. They had to exchange the, the menial gains. This is what they say, not what I'm saying, but I'm just relaying this to you. They said they have lost off because of the taking on of new commitments. Now, I, as a, as a neutral observer, as a, as a facilitator, as a director general, former director general of the BTO, I would say, yes, the rule-setting exercise is important. But the open countries in, in those days, and up till now, I think there must be still some lingering doubts, that in exchange for small gains in agriculture, they had to pay a lot in terms of taking on the new rules on intellectual property right protection. Now, you can take it from me. I mean, I, I'm not going to argue whether it's right or wrong. I would say, yes, we need, we need certain rules in, the, in that area. But the open countries were saying that uh, the, the only countries that could make substantial gains by having the TRIPS agreement was co countries that could do the innovation work, research, basic research. And so this is, a, this, is, this is the right thing. So they were saying in exchange from very small gains in agriculture, they were losing lot, a lot out on the kind of costs, expen expenses, expenditure that they have, to, uh, in, uh, they have been incurred because of that. And by implementing the, the IP laws, a lot of countries will have to go through a lot of painful adjustment in terms of paying up the costs to, to mobilize the resources, to push through the, the laws through the parliaments, set up courts and things like that, and sometimes a challenge because sometimes they are found to be violating the rules. So when you talked about, when you talked about 
trade agreements and trade agreements that results in liberalization, then I know that in empirical research work, you have to quantify it some way. But according to my own experiences and experiences that I share with some of the people who have been negotiating things uh, uh, in, in, trade, uh, in arriving at trade agreements, trade agreements are not always arrived at to the satisfaction of everyone. We used to say that only when there is a sharing, equal sharing of unhappiness, when everyone is equally unhappy, then we reach an agreement on trade agreement. It's never so that everyone will be happy because I mean, they, they keep saying we have to pay for this, we have to pay for that. It, it's, it's always that somebody has to bear the cost and they, they all come out and we, we, used to, we used to try, and I think this is the truth, that when everyone has an equal sharing of unhappiness, then we have an agreement. People keep saying that I mean, we are not achieving the kind of goals we are set out to do and in this Doha round the same thing is happening. Same thing happened in the Uruguay round, we are seeing this again. So, uh, we talk a lot and we use the word constructive ambiguity. I don't know whether you, use, you, you know this word in, in your academic work, but there is such a thing as um, uh, constructive ambiguity. Negotiators, because they want to fake, or I don't know whether the right term to use is fake, but in order to let it be seen that everyone is gaining something from the agreement, negotiators tend to be very pragmatic in writing into the agreement some forms of ambiguity. They call it constructive ambiguity because, because of the ambiguity we could have reached, we, we, we could reach the, the final agreement. Now, you can imagine that because of the uh, inclusion of constructive ambiguity, agreements could be interpreted in so many different manners. They all interpret according to their own needs. So that's why, I mean, uh, and maybe for a different reason, because of the dispute settlement mechanism has become more reliable, mandatory, more legalistic after the GATT has been turned over into the virtual since 1995, that we see a lot more cases of uh, panel discussion of disputes. Hundreds more cases. I think the first 50 years of the WTO we saw about, I don't know, uh, less than 100 cases. And of course, nothing was decided, was decided but you're not bound to, to take up the rulings of the, uh, of the, the panels. After it was uh, uh, agreed to be binding, uh, legalized, there'd be uh, a, few, a few hundred more cases, I think uh, 200 to 300 cases of, of, uh, of disputes. And, and, and mainly maybe because uh, more reliance, uh, more reliability, uh, trustworthiness of the system, and maybe because of the new agreements that we have. And, and, and yes, we have had many agreements after the, the WTO uh, was created. So that, that could be that part. So what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to say is that uh, trade agreements could lead to liberalization for some and maybe not for all, because since the past, not everyone has been a participant in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the discussion and in the agreements. Also, because of the fact that uh, many participants deem themselves uh, to be uh, less uh, 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 proficient uh, or less suitable to be taking on the full agreement, the full commitments on the agreement. So there's been a, a sort of uh, working uh, into this agreement a lot of escape clauses. 
sometimes we use a nice word like enabling clause. Sometimes now we're using spatial and differential treatment. Sometimes we use the word less than reciprocity. Sometimes we use the word flexibility. So even with the achievement of the achievement of the trade agreements with constructive ambiguity, there are clauses in which countries do not always uh, uh, have to adopt the full commitment because uh, they are poor, they, they don't have the, uh, the, the, the legal instrument, they have to go through the parliaments and parliaments cannot be controlled, so it would take years, so they need some respite period, time lag, uh, so that they can join in the uh, commitments. You look at the TRIPS agreement, uh, there are various arrangements for different categories of countries to join the TRIPS. Some countries join right after the Uruguay round, some countries join 10 years after, some countries even more, and now we are just giving a uh, longer less respite for the, for the least of countries that they don't have to join until beyond 2010. So, again, uh, that uh, gives room for, for maneuvering and uh, to take that fully into, in, into the full implementation. Uh, uh, it's happened uh, not to be the case at all times. There are still cases of countries who are supposed to be implementing the, uh, the, the commitments that have not yet been able to implement them because all kind of reason again because they 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 they, they uh, had the argument of having been uh, affected by all kind of crises and and uh, political crises economic crises so that's why as part of the Doha negotiation we have one one big chunk of negotiation which relate to the so-called implementation issues which means the difficulties in some countries not being able to implement various issues. There are at the moment 23, 23 agreements that are being negotiated under the implementation issue that, are, that several countries cannot implement these 23 issues. And they are saying that we would like all these 23 issues to be renegotiated. They are not saying this. This is the, the nice part of um, uh, constructive ambiguity from Doha launch of the round. But they were saying these are so-called 12B issues uh, uh, from the, uh, the Doha 12B, the part of the uh, Doha uh, Declaration that we have to negotiate because, and, and, and this is another stumbling block, I think, towards the end of this round because if we, even if we could agree on modalities for agriculture, for, for, for manufacturing goods and services, and the implementation issue, which uh, several of the European countries are saying that they cannot and they should not be penalized for not implementing them. If these are not amended or uh, 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 some, some form of respite, exemption be given in a way, then they would not be able to, to take part in the, whole, in the whole round agreement. So implementation issues, still another stumbling block that countries still cannot implement some of these uh, past agreements. Uh, there has been uh, various analysis uh, that we've heard and uh, uh, of course, we, we have to be mindful that uh, not everything could be, could be um, uh, tangible and, me and measurable. Uh, there is one World Bank analysis that uh, uh, from time to time I heard uh, being quoted uh, during our negotiations uh, in Geneva uh, to the effect that uh, World Bank has, and, and these are figures that uh, I might not be fully accurate, but uh, this is probably the range of figures that might be right. World Bank has uh, uh, found out that uh, uh, at least 65% of, of, of uh, the facto liberalization has come about because of the autonomous action by governments, let's say unilateral, 
they, they do it themselves. Countries find that they are enlightened governments, and, and this happened uh, many, many times around the world. They do it because they, 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 they probably understand economics, economic theories, and, and so they do it because they think it's good for themselves, and they are right, and this is what the World Bank finds out. It's 65% that real, the fact of liberalization has been done by the autonomous policies unilaterally. 25% has been derived because of multilateral agreements, meaning through the WTO involvement and the rest of 10% through bilateral and regional agreements. I, I tend to use this set of figures to, to a little bit criticize, to be critical of the, of, the, of the regional agreements, which are in hundreds of figures of, in, in terms of numbers, but, uh, and cost a lot of, of money and resources, but deliver very little in terms of liberalization. So what we are seeing here is that, uh, yes, uh, certainly there would be some uh, implications from, from trade agreements on, on liberalization, but the best things and, and the, the real kind of, 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 of liberalization, the openness that we're seeing in countries, mostly derive from autonomous action by the government. And, and we, we, like to, we, 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 like to, we like to impress upon countries that this form of autonomous actions actually is the best form of, of, of liberalization. Because it's, it's something that you do it while not having to subject yourself, submit yourself to any external forces. I mean, this is something which is your own ownership. You do it according to your uh, pace, your space, and uh, to the understanding and uh, acceptability, acceptance by, by the public. So this is something that uh, uh, I think it's, 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 it is rather important to know. So it's not that trade agreements uh, do not have uh, implication. They have, but then uh, the, the kind of uh, autonomous actions would, would uh, be deemed to, to have very strong, very strong impacts. Now, of course, uh, again, uh, the, the effects of trade agreements on, on the trade flows and, and, and trading volume uh, uh, could be analyzed. But the way uh, the effects would, uh, would, would be rooted, uh, I, I don't think it's always the same. It's, it's, it's always true for, for every country along the same line. I mean, that, that there is a sort of direct route to it. I, 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 I think that... Uh, uh, the, the kind of work that we've been doing at ANGTAT, uh, the, the so-called Trade and Development Index that I referred to yesterday in my address, uh, gives the indication that uh, in order to make uh, uh, the trade rules and trade agreements and, and trade liberalization effective for, for uh, development purposes, uh, countries will have to be engaged in the whole range of, of right kind of policies. It cannot be only trade, which is one of the one of the one of the instruments, but very powerful instrument. It cannot only be trade that can be effective in, in achieving developments and, and, and trade flows. But you have to be engaged in a range of macroeconomic uh, disciplinary measures, uh, investment in the right kind of of, of of activities like healthcare and education, human resource. Uh, you must have right set of, of rules, uh, rule of laws, and governance, and, uh, uh, and things like that. So. Uh, uh, again, uh, when we describe the uh, kind of effects of, of trade or, on development or, or, or trade uh, openness, liberalization on trade itself, uh, we, we have probably uh, to take into account different, different other, other factors. Now, I would like to, to end by saying that uh, the, kind of thinking, uh, the kind of thinking at the moment that I can detect uh, during our negotiation in the WTO and this is uh, not uh, only forthcoming from the uh, 
the open countries which are trying to, I mean, uh, they are working for market access in agriculture. At the same time, they are positioning themselves for less than reciprocal treatment in other areas to have exemption in, in certain industrial area and in services or in some rules area. So it's, it's, not a fight. It, it, it's not a fight to be fully committed 100% to all agreements. It's a fight to maintain some flexibility, and, and this is what they call spatial and differential treatment. And Angtat uh, sometimes refer to this term, which I uh, do not always use because I find it a little bit uh, vague, which is so-called the policy space. Uh, Countries keep saying that we need policy space because we cannot adjust ourselves immediately to the commitments. We cannot liberalize uh, as soon as uh, you know, the agreements are finished and everything. So uh, the fight is now uh, as to how uh, countries can exempt themselves from certain uh, agreements. You can see in agriculture, we see all kinds of, of exemptions uh, from the commitments from agreements in agriculture at the moment on the table. For example, you have spatial product treatment. Spatial product treatment meaning that the products that are deemed to be spatial, and this is some key products for some countries that some countries would like to, to opt out. So what does it mean? It means that, uh, what is the use of for some countries, for example, in rice? Rice is one product which is going to be uh, pushed out of the agreements in, in, in agriculture by some key countries, and, and rice is a major export uh, product for some countries. So with spatial product, you would have a large uh, group of, of agricultural products being taken out of the agreement. You have so-called sensitive products. Again, these are products which some countries are deemed to be sensitive to the livelihood of their people, subsistence farmings and everything. So this product will be taken out again. Some of these products will be taken out again. And then you have the so-called spatial, I don't know what they call, spatial safeguard or something like that. Uh, and it means that when you have some injury, some uh, influx, uh, uh, huge increases, surge, surge in, uh, in import uh, uh, quantity of certain pro agricultural products, you can put in some, uh, some forms of protection, uh, some tariffs and quota. So again, it's another, another layers of, of protection. So I, I am not so sure whether the, the full treatment of agriculture in this round will be really up to the level of ambitions that people are seeing that we're going to achieve the, you know, the full liberalization in agricultural trade, there'll be a lot of, of exemptions. So be, because of this reality, what I'm, what I'm saying is that, uh, yes, uh, I, I think we do need uh, trade agreements, if only for the fact that without the trade agreements, we like to use this uh, comparison to the, the, the cycling theory. I mean, it's like people cycling. I mean, the moment you stop to cycle, the moment you stop to move, you just, you just fall back, you just fall, fall down. So this is just, just to keep things in motion. This is basically what, what we believe when we go into negotiation. We believe that if you stop negotiating, if you stop negotiating, then people will slide back. They would come up with all kinds of, of new inventions in, in, in intervening at the borders, in intervening with the non-tariff barriers, with standard of goods, with sanitary standards, all kinds of things. So mainly for that fact, to keep people away from sliding backwards, we think it's worthwhile to continue without negotiations and continue the, uh, to, to, to continue without, without uh, uh, effort to achieve trade agreements. Secondly, we believe that uh, the rule-based system uh, is the best at the moment. I mean, I, I just can't believe that people could afford to go back into, into something which is less than a rule-based system. We need a rule-based system 
because it gives the opportunity to have non-discriminatory treatment for everyone, and this is what the world needs. So I think we believe in, 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 in the rule-based system, and, and this is something that uh, uh, we would like to, to uphold with our, with our agreement. And the thirdly, we think that predictability in a world which is full of unpredictable movements, in a world where everything floats, where everything changes, and the dynamism is so strong, we need for trade some form of predictability so that people can, can keep on trading and have beliefs in the things that, that, that they are doing and so uh, trade uh, can, can keep on expanding. And the last point, uh, we do have belief uh, in the fact that, of course, by being more competitive, by being more competitive and because of this globalizing needs and everything, we have to be more competitive because of the need to be more competitive. Sometimes people try to circum circumvent the rules. They violate the rules, and so we need this dispute settlement system, which is being operated so effectively well uh, under the, the regime. And that's why we need agreement. And we need agreement to be, to be in place in a way that everyone can, uh, can lash on to. And, and this is something which is, I think, a, a wonderful invention of, of mankind. I mean, I, if, if I look at anything that mankind has been inventing, I mean, all the fantastic sand uh, and te technological inventions, this invention that mankind can have one common set of rules on which I would say 149 countries can base their, their, their trade activities on and, and can have the, the judgment being passed, the, uh, the judiciary being passed on, on some of the, uh, the actions. This is, this is a wonderful thing, and all countries are, are treated on, on equal terms on this basis of this bill settlement system that has been shown to be working so well. So this is the conclusion that I would like to, to, to contribute to that I do believe uh, in, in, the, in the trade agreements and effects on, on, on trade and development, but of course we have to be realistic in certain areas that might not be fully meeting our, our requirements and some countries might not be fully taking up the commitments. And uh, the, the real kind of gains might be in the areas of the rules, the rule-based system, predictability, non-discriminatory treatment, the resolution of the dispute uh, uh, setting. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're going to just take a, a fast break. We're running a little bit late. Um, and we will reconvene in about eight minutes or so. So go out to get some coffee, come back while we, we change. Thank you very much. Let me just thank all our um, panel discussants. That was very wonderful. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.